Wrestling Federation. For over 50 years, the revolutionary force in sports entertainment. Welcome everyone to the Sky Dome, Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Tonight it's Royal Rumble Raw, where over 25,000 fans are here, plus Shawn Michaels, Psycho Sid, and two championships on the line. Hello ladies and mostly gentlemen. Just so you know, my name is David K. Martin and today's show is a bonus episode sponsored by Jesse Fitch from the 416 area code. As per Jesse's remittance, I'm going to go back to February 3rd, 1997 to review a show that occurred on the day of his birth, no less. Welcome to another edition of MLW History. Today, we're going back to the year of our lord, 1997, to break down the third ever wrestling event from the Toronto Sky Dome. But before I get into all that disarray, allow me to grab an extension cord to plug all of what Wrestling Headlines has in store for you good folks today. As always, beginning with the alpha among beta males, Matthew Mayer, aka The Implications, provides you all you need to know on the mainstream wrestling scene with his TV review show, LOP Radio, and his immediate pay-per-view recap show, Aftershock, available on YouTube as well. But that's not to take anything away from the world-famous all-night-long wrestling podcast that brings you the best interviews, opinions, news, and reviews on the current state of the sport. But I guess that's also not to take anything away from my personal favorite podcast, WWF, The Legacy Series. Folks, get the fuck on board with these two if you're not already. Shane and the Miz fan may have been the first to actually take advantage of the WWE Network archives and spent the better part of three years extensively unearthing WCW in great detail when no one else wanted to. And now, these humanitarians are back to give you the most God's honest review of the World Wrestling Federation through unbiased eyes. And finally, I suggest that you tune into the Doc's WrestleMania Era 2.0 podcast. Well, you still can, folks, wherever podcasts are distributed, because this could be his final run in the main event scene, and I feel you will never again gain the wisdom he shares naturally. <laughs> he's lived through it, he's paid for it, and he's seen it all, folks. That's a show worth checking out, y'all. And a special shout-out, too, to WrestlingHeadlines.com residents Jay Cool for his wicked main page NXT reviews that he's been doing steadily for years now, and Sir Sam and Tim Rose, who I can't even think of enough big words to put them over with. They're both class acts, and both of their columns can be both hilarious and just awesome as fuck simultaneously. But I think it's safe to say Mr. Tito is still the Hiroshi Tanahashi of this place, and his columns are guaranteed to teach you something you were previously unaware of. Alright, let's start the show off with a little edumacation, beginning with 1990. 1990 was arguably the climax of the Hulkamania era, as was 2002 being the end of the Attitude Era, and quite frankly the WWF altogether. So how was the WWF drawing in between those eras? Well, as I said before, the February 3rd edition of Raw from the Sky Dome was only the third ever recorded instance of wrestling at that stadium. Coinciding with the Ontario economic recession, WWF's downward years saw an absence from booking any shows at the Sky Dome until this fateful night I'm reviewing tonight. Today, whatever the fuck. <laughs> Originally, it was taped for Friday, January 31st of 97, but it was airing on February 3rd of 97. 
But that absence wasn't a reflection of WWF's drawing power in the city. No, like, you see, it was just five months prior in the summer of 96 that WWF would hold, like, a, a global warming tour type of house show called WWF Experience with an X. Surprisingly, once again, the event was taped with some matches actually floating around on the internet, but it hasn't been released on the network like so many other shows. Nonetheless, back on October 24th of 96, WWF drew nearly 22,000 to the outdoor exhibition stadium for that event. So Vince was actually right to come back to the Sky Dome here in 97 so soon. Like there was a thirst for this new product. And now as of this recording, I am still completely unaware of how demographics exactly measure up or what is considered domestic viewership when it comes to live television across North America. So if anybody cares to enlighten me, hit me up at MLWHistoryPod on Twitter, please and thank you. Personally, I don't give a shit about it, but I would like to understand it for the sake of understanding. Like, here's what I mean. What I did find out in preparation for this show was that although Canadians did get TBS, which aired Thunder on its regularly scheduled time slot, our version of ESPN, which is called TSN, had the rights to broadcast Raw and Nitro in our country. Uh, WWF Raw exclusively aired live on Monday nights for the entire duration of the Attitude Era with a 15-minute tape delay because of, you know, differences in television standards. Whereas Nitro would air on Wednesday evenings and later move to Tuesdays towards the end. Like, yes, again, that tape delay is due to the moral and political differences in our TV standards and practices, so it's questionable whether Canadians had any impact on the Monday Night Wars as far as ratings go. But at least for us, if we felt like it, we could watch both shows uninterrupted with at least minor edits. For instance, if I ever find my tape collection, I got a tape called, um, WWF Band in Canada. And it's like an hour of Vince Russo's trashiest moments. TSN was saying, hell fuck no to airing. Like, maybe I'll review it someday if it's on the internet so I can share it with you guys. But I think this is a good cutoff break to grab a drink. And when we come back, I'll give you the rundown on the events leading up to February 3rd Raw. And later, I'll run out of bullshit to say and then get around to reviewing the show right after this. All right. You guys having a good time now? Nice. So uh, this is the, you know, we're getting an idea of the show now. You know what I'm saying? So let me tell you something. Uh, my parents now have been in uh, Canada 41 years. They, uh, they moved from India to Canada 41 years ago. I don't know how they picked it or whatever, but they were like, Canada. And I was like, okay, well, maybe when you get there, you'll be able to say it. So, um... But when my dad first moved to Canada, he didn't just want to live here, you know what I mean? He didn't want to be a guy that just lived in Canada, he wanted to become a Canadian. And he thought that there was things that you could do to become a Canadian, like, like you just do a couple of things and bang, overnight you're a Canadian, you know what I mean? And he used to come up with these schemes when I was a kid. I remember one time when I was a little kid, he called me, he was like, son, come here. Here's the thing with Indian parents, too. They, they never just um, tell you directly to come and do something. They, uh, they, it's just not that kind of culture, you know what I mean? Indian parents will not boss you around like that. Hey, come here. Because they, they have salesmen built into them, you know what I mean? 
no matter what the situation is, they feel the need to convince you to do something. You know what I mean? And sometimes they'll just take one word and make it sound like a question to make you come there and be like, Russell, come. 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 So remember this one night, right? My dad was like, son, tonight we will become Canadians. I said, dad, um, I was already born here. I think I got it covered. Okay, but what's your plan? He goes, son, I have bought a barbecue. I go, well, what are you going to do, cook the rest of Canada and we're the only ones left? No, Canadians like to eat the barbecue. I go, dad, they don't actually eat the barbecue, but... I think I know where you're going with this. I go, what's your plan? He goes, tonight, we will have a barbecue in the backyard. We will invite all the neighbors. They will come over, eat our food, and think we are a Canadian. I said, Dad, if they eat our food, they're going to know we're not Canadian. <laughs> Our food will have flavor. <laughs> okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. And welcome back, everyone. And... Holy shit, my bad, that was so lazy on my part, but I'm recording this on one of my days off, so give me a break, I'm on edibles right now. A anyways, since this is the Attitude Era and there's a war going on within the minds of Eric Bischoff and Vince McMahon, may as well just whip it out and see how they measured up, right? So by now, we're week 38 into WCW's 83-week dominance, and speaking of ratings, the February 3rd edition of Raw drew about a 2.6 rating, which according to the internet averages out at about three and a quarter million TVs tuned in live. Mid to late 96 saw a steady decline in accountable viewership, with the October 21st 96 Raw being the last time until now that Raw would actually draw that 2.6 rating, with that aforementioned show in 96 being the return of Bret Hart after his loss at WrestleMania 12. Now, according to Jim Cornette, it was one of the additions of Livewire leading up to uh, the Royal Rumble that Vic Venom told anybody who watched the Saturday morning program that Brett was going to win the 97 Rumble, and it was totally obvious, and then he probably even said bro three or five times, causing the match to be rebooked in an era where Bret Hart talked about this being the point in time where Sean and Triple H still had a lot of sway with Vince, and he felt like his pushes were always being constantly derailed. Now... Sorry, I'm getting way off track. Getting back to the point, since ratings were the be-all, end-all of television programs, Vince was doing anything and everything imaginable to cross-promote and secure viewership. Viewership. Sponsorship is what I meant to say. Well, I guess both. Uh, and again, Canadians were not subject to most American television 
without satellite or some sort of package deals. So we can relate to the folks across the pond watching Sky Sports whenever Vince plugs some bullshit sitcom for USA. Because just like for us, wrestling is a sport that airs on the goddamn sports channel. Like, I can't even believe it took this long until now, but it was this February 3rd Raw that was the first two-hour counter-program against Nitro. And we remain in that two-hour time slot until Raw 1000 way back in July of 2012. Okay, um, how's this for, uh, anecdote? The story goes is, is that the Skydome show I'm talking about today was supposed to primarily be a one-hour program with additional house show matches taped for a much later air date. That's why you don't have the giant R.A.W. letters at the entrance ramp. Because it was just another cost-cutting measure because they're crossing the border. And historically, Canadian currency has always been about 25% less than American currency. So we're almost always paying 30% more in the exchange rate when you're crossing the border back. Sorry, I'm getting back off track again. Anyways, well, in the span of time between January 31st and February 3rd, USA Network allotted WWF a two-hour block. Because originally, the plan was for USA to rebroadcast the WWF title match with Sean versus Sid, and the Royal Rumble match apparently in its entirety for the first time since the inaugural edition in 88. From Hamilton, y'all. <laughs> and they actually spent a considerable amount of time advertising for this as the Royal Rumble Raw. Now, obviously, that didn't happen, but now that you know that, watch this Raw back and listen up for Vince masking this by making fun of WCW every 15 minutes for not delivering delivering what they advertise. Like, haha, <laughs> charade you are, pal. And why I mention this is because the pay-per-view providers actually threatened to sue USA Network due to a violation in replay rights. Why? Because not enough time had elapsed before it could be aired for free. So instead, we're left with this hastily put together two-hour house show edition of Raw, featuring about, I don't know, four minutes of clips from the Royal Rumble 13 days prior. Although, to WWE's credit, they did actually pay this off what, 18 years later in that long-forgotten, snowed-out Raw? I think it was back in 2015? So, fair fucks to them. We actually did get a Royal Rumble Raw. Alright, now it's time to get into the build-up. Cue the music! Welcome everybody to WCW Monday Night Nitro, January 13th, 97, from the Louisiana Superdome. Just under 11,000 in attendance, but touted as the largest attended wrestling show for a Monday night ever. That was the infamous Nitro where DDP became a made man by refusing to join the New World Order. However, after advertising all week and throughout the duration of tonight's program that Hollywood Hulk Hogan was going to defend the World Heavyweight title against the Giant, the main event ended with Hulk Hogan versus Big Show surpassing to the end of Nitro and then going 45 minutes into the commercial breaks for the new adventures of Robin Hood just for the match to go to a no fucking contest or disqualification however you want to look at it. Utter bullshit. Next, the 97 Royal Rumble took place on January 19th with Shawn Michaels defeating Sid to regain the WWF title in his hometown and Stone Cold sneakily re-entering the Royal Rumble and eliminating Bret Hart to win the match. The post-match after Aftermath saw the Hitman fucking losing it on the referees for not noticing Austin's elimination and Brett poetically, poetically, a cross between prophetically and poetically declares that he was screwed over for the first of many, many, 
many, many, many, many instances to come. The next night on Raw, January 20th, if you're not keeping track, saw the historic blow-up of Brett to Vince, publicly acknowledging Vince as the boss for the first time in WWF canon, and then quits right there on the spot for getting fucked over and screwed. Not to be mistaken with the March 16th or 17th Raw. We're talking January 20th, check it out. This is honestly one of Brett's best promos of his career, and nobody talks about it. Uh, Owen and the British Bulldog that night would actually finally begin to feud with the All Japan Boys Doug Furness and Phil LaFon, and Owen eliminating Davy Boy in the Royal Rumble was what really begun the heavy tease of the half-brothers splitting up and losing the tag belts. However, Furness and LaFon actually debuted at Survivor Series 96 teaming up with the Godwins to pick up a victory over Owen, Davy, and the fucking New Rockers, but for whatever reason, the Godwins would get the benefit of that victory first, even though they've been fighting the Hart family since September. That's four months until this point. Like, man, this tag division sucked dick. Not even fondly, might I add. <laughs> Finally, for January 20th. <laughs> Gorilla Monsoon makes an announcement addressing the Royal Rumble controversy. Essentially, Monsoon says that Stone Cold wins the Rumble because that's the referee's decision is always final. They are God. However, he will not be getting a title shot at WrestleMania 13 because of the way he won the match. Thank the Lord. Uh, Gorilla instead makes a fatal four-way elimination no-DQ match, the first of its kind, and the winner will face whoever is the WWF champ at WrestleMania 13. This was a great way to help people forget that Kane, playing fake Diesel, was actually in the final three and just got eliminated from fucking Brett right as Stone Cold slid back in unbeknownst to the referees. Like, that is very sly. Ah, oh, what else do I have? WWF was still airing its B-Show Superstars for some reason, but beginning on January 4th in 97, they began airing a C-Show, the infamous Shotgun Saturday Night, with the inaugural show being the most memorable for Marlena taking off her top and exposing her pasty-covered tits as a distraction for Goldust to get the win over the goddamn Sultan of all people. And look, without the help of WWE telling me when the Attitude Era kicked off, I'd say, in my opinion, whenever Austin and Pillman took it to the next level with that home invasion shit, I think that is the precursor to the tone of style that would become the Attitude Era. But the ideals of Shotgun Saturday Night were supposed to be the more edgier, sleazier, ECW-esque type of branding that WWF hadn't even adopted yet for Raw. That's the irony. I mean, for Christ's sakes, we, ha we have red, white, and blue ropes still. <laughs> Anyways, for January 25th, 97, that was the bullshit WCW sold out pay-per-view that took place on a Saturday. And by Monday's Nitro on January 27th, Eric Bischoff would redact the only victory against the NWO on sold out when he fired Randy Anderson for officiating the finish to the main event and then stripped the Steiner brothers of the tag team titles and literally returned them to Hall and Nash. Fuck you! <laughs> Other noteworthy mentions are uh, Steve Mongo McMichael being forced by Deborah to attack Eddie in a US title match, but Mongo decided to clock the champion Jeff Jarrett with his briefcase for the DQ. After that, mean, woo, by God, Gene <laughs> interviews the four horsemen for a segment, and I, I failed to mention this. This was still during the Benoit-Sullivan rivalry, and on the January 20th episode of Nitro, they beat the shit out of each other. And I don't know how y'all feel about Benoit, so I'm not gonna recommend any of his matches to you, but seriously, I, I am sorry for exaggerating, 
But the finish to that match is just fucking retarded. And if you choose to see it, you'll know exactly what I mean. Sorry to offend, I'm pretty fucking high and I'm just being real. And the highlights from this show actually included Arn Anderson's last ever match on this night when he teamed with Steve McMichael to defeat the fucking amazing French Canadians PCO and Jacques Rougeau. Notice how I didn't say wrestle? Because it was four minutes and nothing special really happened at all. But I'm not done because the low light to this show was once again the giant defeating Hulk Hogan by disqualification for the third consecutive time via NWO interference and beating the piss out of Big Show. For future reference, the Giant never gets another world title match after this, and instead is transitioned down into a role feuding with Hall and Nash over the tag belts with Lex Luger. So, so what we got instead is Hogan being forced by the WCW booking committee to defend the world title against Piper since Roddy got the win at Starcade back in late December. But in typical WCW fashion, it wasn't made clear that won't be happening next week, folks, but at Super Brawl. <sighs> Fuck's sakes. As for the January 27th Raw, it was a complete and utter piece of trash, as Stone Cold might say. It was taped in advance and mainly used as a commercial to hype the Royal Rumble Raw I'm going to be speaking about soon. But historically speaking, it does go down as the last one-hour formatted Raw. But do not consider it historic. It's not. It's, it's really bad. There's like one redeeming quality with Stone Cold talking some trash. But whatever will be worth mentioning, I'll do so when it's relevant. Just let that one hour raw stay dead, y'all. Seriously, don't dig it up. Alright, I, um, I think that about does it for the background, but guys, I'm not even joking when I state that the first month of 97 leading up to the February 3rd raw absolutely fucking sucked. WCW did not deserve to get a 3.7 rating for the following two weeks to this Raw, and although WWF's rating would increase from a 2.2 those same two weeks to the 2.6 for this particular Raw, WCW would only drop down to a 3.1 rating, so obviously that's where those 0.5 decibel points went that week. In my opinion, this is actually an embarrassingly bad moment in time to reflect upon during this unprecedented time in professional wrestling. And ultimately, I have to set aside my own personal bias because some of the people that actually did go to these shows and were watching enjoyed it, and they enjoyed the shit out of it while it was happening. And in 2020, at a time where you can't hide a bad wrestler with a good reaction, that has never been more prevalent and evident to me than after re-watching all these shows. Like, you just had to be there, man. You had to live in the time to understand, for lack of a better phrase. With all that out of the way, I can finally get to the point of the show and give you all a rundown on WWF's first ever televised show in Ontario. Awaiting the present. Oh, here he comes! Good victory of Texas! I'm sorry, but once again, I have to go out of my way to explain something to you guys before we get going with this show. 
I've been using WrestlingData.com to search all the cards in Ontario during the 1990s, and to my surprise, WWF was still drawing respectively well in Ontario throughout most of the Dark Ages, as I like to call it. I even find it odd that they were hitting the smaller venues regularly over your annual big events, per se. However, they still maintained selling out arenas and expanded to the uncharted provinces to develop an even greater footprint here in Canada. When I was watching back all these Raws, I saw how the crowds were still unfavorable to Stone Cold here and there. And obviously, the San Antonio, Texas audience gave Steve his first babyface reaction at the Rumble. But after that, he's still booed outside of Texas. And if I may jump ahead to In Your House Final Four, the Tennessee crowd that night didn't even respond to the glass shattering, nor did they erupt for Steve's entrance like the Canadians do here. Alright, now that we finally got that out of the way, we finally kicked things off with Vader in the ring, mixed in with some Royal Rumble clips to somewhat deliver on the theme of tonight's show. 25,628 confirmed in attendance. Immediately, you'll notice how dark the Sky Dome is. And yes, obviously that was used to hide the upper 28,000 seats being empty, but again, this was largely due to the fact that this was supposed to be a spot show, folks. So that's why the dimly lit dome appears darker and ambiance compared to the other grittier shot raws of this era. And just as a testament to being a mark, I actually found fan cam footage of this event. And I actually want to go out of my way to play Steve Austin's entrance for you because WWF's audio just couldn't capture what I'm about to describe. Listen to this. Did you fucking hear that? Like, do not ever forget that Stone Cold Steve Austin was never meant to be good. Guys, it was the crowd who turned heel on the wrestlers first. Steve was still in a heated rivalry with the Hitman and has not relented on being this detestable dick bastard of a human being since creating the character some eight months prior. But these fucking people love him, man. Although the camera poorly pans out to the crowd for like just a mere glimpse, all you see in that moment are white collar, multicultural men marking the fuck out and losing their fucking minds when Austin's music hits. Like, I, I, think, I think this was the show that Vince decided, JR, this foreign world is bizarre, pal. I mean, seriously, what the actual fuck, Toronto? Steve got an even louder reaction than Brett did. I, I mean, why? Hell, Owen gets a bigger pop than Brett, and he's still a heel for fuck's sakes. Like, th this is bizarre, man. And I never thought I'd say this word, but my god, is Steve Austin polarizing. Like... Consider this, on one hand, the San Antonio crowd did pop for Steve getting eliminated by Hart, but almost immediately thereafter, they still cheered again for Steve winning the Royal Rumble in controversial fashion. Here in Toronto though, I shit you not guys, re-watch this broadcast and pay attention, because nobody else on this fucking card got the reaction like Steve did. 
It just blows my mind that this show was such a precursor for WWF's future for so many things to come in so many ways. I couldn't even begin to name or explain everything without a sober mindset. But in this instance, just having Vince and JR sitting at ringside and hearing that guttural roar for Austin firsthand, that should have been enough to solidify his push into the main event. Finally, match number one, Vader with Paul Bear versus Stone Cold Steve Austin. Now, before the ref can call for the bell, Bret Hart actually rushes the ring and attacks Steve from behind, and the crowd marks out hard for this. The fan cam footage provides such a great layer of context for how that audience was feeling, especially how it shows that the upper tier could barely see shit outside the ring without the spotlights. And the camera guy recording the show remarks about the lighting several more times throughout the night. Like, only he can really see, and everyone else is just, like, left in the dark quite figuratively and literally. But despite all that, this was such a great way to open the show for the fans. Officials and referees have to separate Hart from Austin and basically drag Brett's ass out of here while Vader actually has to leave the ring, check on Paul Bearer, who apparently took a bump in the midst of the melee, but nobody saw it. So when Vader rolls back into the ring, that's when Austin capitalizes and gets the early advantage by stomping a mud hole on Vader's ass to the people's delight. And now, the first minutes of the match is really just Steve beating the hell out of Vader in the corner. Like, we're six or so months away from Austin getting his neck broken, but this style right here already suits his character so perfectly. If I'm not mistaken, this is Steve's last match before donning the knee braces. I recall Shawn Michaels actually mentioning once that him and Steve were rehabbing injuries together in San Antonio after the Rumble, but find that out for yourselves. Alright, my notes from the match are... Not a very smart move by Stone Cold in the opening minutes of the match. He spits on Vader and then turns his back on him to take off his vest and Vader fucking decks him from behind. Uh, Vader does give Steve a receipt for every punch and kick with one of his own and even spits on Steve back for good measure. So maybe I am being a little too critical here, but I just didn't like this match. I didn't like how Vader thought he could just put away Austin in under five minutes with just some clubbing blows and a scoop slam. Although the finish was Vader going to Brett's rope to do his finish, but after a second too long, he get he decides to go up on the top rope. And remember, there used to be a rule about going up on the top rope. You could only have five seconds to do so before you did your move. So the referee tries to intervene. Well, I don't know who the hell this ref is, but Vader thrusts his hand into the ref's face and knocks him into the guardrail, but the ref no-sells it like someone would in real life, and then just jumps back in the ring after a second. But all Steve needed was that split second to get up and low blow Vader off the top rope. Vader doesn't actually go down though, so Stone Cold starts rifling some punches at Vader all the way into the corner. The ref tries to break up the action in the corner, so Stone Cold tries to Irish whip Vader to the other side, but the man I've called Vader too many times reverses this and sends Steve back where he came from and squishes the referee standing in the corner's way. Vader gains control and does his big man shit through the commercial break as the ref gets his wits about him. After a few splash and pin attempts, Austin gets out of the way on Big Van third try and might I add this is a heel versus heel match the crowd fucking loves Vader and they are losing their minds and they are so behind Steve's comeback and hope spots too it's so split I mean fucking hell Steve just scoop slams Vader at one point so fast with such ease it's like Holy fuck. And that's where the fan cam footage is necessary, people. Because this crowd erupts huge for that, but the WWF's live mics barely capture it. And I'm also noticing a delay in sound too, which is understandable for a dome. But the fucker is enclosed, so I don't know what the hell to tell ya. 
I have it noted here, 8 minutes 32 seconds into the show, Vince takes his first shot at WCW by saying, In addition, ladies and gentlemen, we have tonight, no bait and switch tactics here tonight, no, we have two championship matches, we promised it, we'll bring it to you. Look, there isn't much to review here, this is essentially a walk-kick-punch exchange that gets the added bonus of being contested as the first match on display for a hot foreign audience. In the COVID era, motherfuckers would be killing themselves for a reaction like this. But sadly, this wasn't a good match by any means. Not in my opinion, at least. But it ends with Stone Cold pounding the piss out of Vader on the ropes. So the ref interjects by putting his hands on Stone Cold. <clears throat> so he gets a stunner for his trouble to throw out the match. And unbelievably, the stadium comes unglued for that like as if it was Vince who got stunned. Everything felt authentic and nobody cares about it being a lackluster match. They just wanted to see the spectacle of Steve Austin being a badass. And in classic WWF fashion, Vader and Steve brawl all around the ring up the ramp as JR and Vince plug the upcoming In Your House match. Look, this show really isn't about me, and this doesn't really matter to you guys, but let me just say, I remember when my dad got me the 24-7 WWE gimmick, and it was at the point of airing the last two weeks of February 97, so I must have watched Thursday Raw Thursday maybe half a dozen times. And for the longest time when I was a kid, I thought they were a Thursday show for a period of time. Like, I, I didn't even know they only did it once. And since AEW's been jumping around with its air dates as of late, let me play you the promo package to show y'all how it's fucking done. Thursday night is my favorite night of the week. A live two-hour World Wrestling Federation extravaganza. Raw Thursday. Bret Hart has developed a real attitude. And this Mastodon wants to clean his club. Everybody better get out of my way. It's a volatile war amongst one half of the WWF Final Four. Thursday. Raw Thursday. Shawn Michaels is reliving the dream. But this nightmare won't go away. There's nowhere to hide. Nowhere to run. Shawn Michaels battles Psycho Sid for the WWF Championship. Big man, I'm not through with you yet. Thursday, Raw Thursday. Plus, The Undertaker, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Ahmed Johnson, and a nation of domination will be in the house. I'm ready to deliver the play. Thursday, Raw Thursday. Absolutely unpredictable. Absolutely live. Thursday, Raw. Thursday, live. A two-hour special. Thursday, February 13th on USA. I fucking love that video package. It has been ingrained in my mind like the My Way hype video probably was for most of you. Oh my god, can't get enough of it. Match number two, Savio Vega versus Flash Funk. Right off the bat, I gotta state that I fucking loved Too Cold Scorpio and ECW and WCW. And it's a bummer that we'd held him back from advancing higher in his career, but I will totally accept that over racism being the reason. <laughs> oh, denial. Anyways, speaking of denial, Savio Vega betrayed Ahmed Johnson earlier in January and joined the Nation of Domination, and as much as I've always wanted to get into the Nation, my fucking god were they booked poorly. As Savio and the Nation make their way to the ring, JR is actually walking behind them through the curtain like a member? And it's just, it's an unintentionally hilarious sight because they're all dressed the same, all decked out in black, and now you got Crush in the mix, so why not add a heel JR? But no, instead Ross asked Vega why he betrayed Ahmed and turned his back on the fans. To which Savio delivered this cliche, generic-ass speech about not giving a damn what anybody thinks. Oh my god, how many times have you heard that? Immediately after that, just 
13 minutes into the show, I quoted Vince saying, quote, And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, this special presentation of Royal Rumble Raw, special two-hour presentation. Don't go anywhere. We've got two title matches up here tonight. No bait-and-switch tactics. We're not going to promise you maybe something. We're going to deliver on everything we say. End quote. <laughs> Just let that sink in for a second. All right, so Michael Hayes joins Vince on commentary to give JR a break, but unfortunately, he'll be here for the remainder of the show. And even more so unfortunate is everybody who watches this glorified house show match. Match. Scorpio looks like a fucking jackass wearing this goofy yellow and orange jumpsuit. It's such a detractor for such an amazing groundbreaking wrestler. What a fucking shame. And just pitiful. <laughs> and look, this match was indeed some crowd-killing heel work just to kind of get the heat on the nation in preparation for WrestleMania. But it's worth noting that the crowd responded favorably for all of Scorpio's spots. Savio picks up the quick victory though by evading Scorpio's moonsault and quickly capitalizing with a pin attempt for the three. Like, good on Savio for hooking the leg, but in all seriousness, I suppose the finish was somewhat convincing when you keep in mind the ring was still hard as rock in 97. What the fuck is this? Next, we see a cross-promotional segment with Vince interviewing Peter Wilson to plug the show airing after Raw called La Femme Nikita. I don't know how long they did this for, but I just think it's funny as fuck that this show was the counter-programming to the Robin Hood or Peter Pan show that was airing after Nitro. Like, goddamn, even I underestimated the seriousness of the Monday Night Wars. Like... <laughs> I, I couldn't tell you how long this lasts, but I will tell you this segment wasn't taped in Toronto. And if you listen closely, the nation are actually making their entrance and Farouk begins to cut a promo in the background. Still to come on Royal Rumble Raw, The Undertaker and Ahmed against Mankind and Farouk in a no-holds-barred tag war. Plus, the Intercontinental title up for grabs as the wild man Mark Merrill takes on Hunter Hearst Filmsley. But up next, the former WWF champion, Psycho Sid. We're back. No bait and switch about an upcoming title match. No, we guarantee two of them tonight. Plus, ladies and gentlemen, Ahmed Johnson teaming up with The Undertaker against Mankind and Farouk. But right now, let's take you to JR. Just 20 minutes in the show, and that's the third time now that Vince himself has taken a shot at WCW. Like, I love this version of Vince, and no, I don't feel any shame whatsoever in saying that. So, uh, so back in the ring, JR is actually, uh, conducting an interview with Sid, and my god, these people erupt like thunder and lightning when he makes his way out here. If I remember correctly, he never exactly became a good guy after beating Sean for the belt at, like, Survivor Series. People have just been cheering him anyway, similar to Austin. It is really hard for me to define in retrospect who is supposed to be what during this period of time, because if the crowds thought you were cool, then you were just over, brother. And watching Sid make his entrance here, like, Jesus Christ, he is greeted with a hero's welcome. I, just listen to JR's question here, though. It, it's ridiculous, man. Like, Sid has just lost the belt less than two weeks ago to Shawn Michaels, and Sid's response to JR's ridiculous question is actually somewhat coherent, at least in comparison to the Ultimate Warrior. Psycho Sid, I'd like to ask you a question about the WWF Champion before we do. It all started at the Survivor Series. When you walked into Madison Square Garden and you became the World Wrestling Federation Champion. And then in less than 30 days, you went to West Palm Beach, Florida and you beat a legend in Bret the Hitman Hart. But it all ended for you at the Royal Rumble. Fate is a funny game. So what I want to ask you right now, in your gut, 
in your gut, Sid, what do you feel? What do you really feel personally about the WWF champion, Shawn Michaels? See, I've heard Shine say it himself. The relationship him and I have, it's the weird one. It's a roller coaster up and down. Mentally, physically, and emotionally. You can say it's a friendship maybe on the edge of madness. With saying that, I feel safe to say that even Shawn Michaels would agree that evil is just that. It is evil. And sometimes we mistake it for happiness. Maybe in my case, evil showed up at Survivor Series. And in your case, Shawn Michaels, maybe evil showed up at the Royal Rumble. But when this roller coaster ride is over, Shawn, when it is over and it's come up and it's come down and the ride comes to a halt, and the smoke clears. I will be standing the man. I will be standing the man and the master and the ruler. I wonder if this commercial is actually in your WWE Network version of the show. Listen to this. Well, where have you gone, Yokozuna and Brian Pillman? For the answer to this, and an update on Sonny as well as James E. Cornette, one place to check out, option six, the Ross Report of the World Wrestling Federation Superstar Line. Just call 1-900-737-4WWF. Call costs $1.49 per minute. Kids, get your parents' permission before calling. Call it now. Hit me up on Twitter at MLWHistoryBot. And explain to me, what the hell was that supposed to be? Like, what happened here, please? Uh, next, we get a quick word from Vince McMahon talking to the tag team champions of the world, Owen Hart and Davey Boy Smith. Before their scheduled title defense, Vince is eliciting some sort of dissension between the two by bringing up the fact that Owen actually eliminated Davey intentionally in the Rumble match. But Owen, in classic fashion, just completely no-sells those accusations. And my god, can I just remark how amazing Owen is whenever he was in character. Like, this guy always takes advantage of his camera time. Like, truly a class act showman with his performances. I don't even know whether or not to call them subtle nuances. But regardless, uh, match number three, the WWF World Tag Team Championships on the line with the champions British Bulldog and Owen Hart defending against Phil LaFon and Doug Furness. Now, the fan cam footage actually shows that Furness and LaFon got, respectively, uh, an audible reception, but nowhere near comparable to everyone else on tonight's show. The guy holding the fan cam actually, like, says before the champs make their way out, quote, I bet they're gonna play Bulldog's music, followed by, quote, everyone's gonna cheer for Owen because he's Canadian, <laughs> end quote. And goddamn, wouldn't you know it. Owen and Davey get a huge reaction from the crowd, but it, it just doesn't sound the same on the WWF version, which is just so disappointing. But nonetheless, what really should have been a Meltzer Marks dream match just turned out to be like the best match on a rather unspectacular Raw. But nonetheless, here's the rundown. 
As he enters the ring, Owen tries his best, saying, I hate Canada. I don't even know anything about Canada. <laughs> to which Vince retorts, Unbelievable! He lives here! <laughs> that is awesome. Alright, ring the bell. We kick things off with Davey and LaFon squaring up. LaFon shows off his 97 white man hybrid style with a MMA jumping takedown to Bulldog, transitioning into a leg lock to get the early upper hand. But Davey makes it to the ropes. Nonetheless, commentary was impressed by that takedown and put LaFon over pretty strong. Playing as the babyface, LaFon actually releases all his submissions before the ref can even signal and count. But he gets back up and attempts to Irish whip Davy into the corner. Davy reverses and rushes LaFon into the corner and eats a boot of the face for his trouble. Phil tries to capitalize with a springboard crossbody, but Davy catches him and the crowd pops for the power slam attempt. And I say attempt because Phil slides out at the last second and pushes Davy into the corner, but as LaFon hooks Davy for a German suplex, he leaves himself exposed for an elbow to the side of the head, which leads to Davy giving him a clothesline to secure some control. Davey decides to tag in Owen as Vince mentions on commentary that LaFon's partner Doug Furness has the flu tonight, which I'll put over as impressive when somebody can work through a cold. Like, that's never gonna happen again in today's world, so kayfabe or not, I think it's still a great way to protect a sympathetic baby face in peril. Owen hops over the ropes and gets an arm drag takedown for his effort, and he just starts fucking flailing his legs <laughs> and getting all pissed off like, not realizing that the dungeon master is no match against the technical wizard. Owen escapes the wrist lock transition with his signature spin out kip up combination, just a hair pull thrust uh, LaFon to the mat. But LaFon kips up as well, so Owen chomps and headbutts his opponent to the corner. Owen Irish whips LaFon to the other side, monkey flips Phil, who barely lands on his feet. And because it doesn't look so polished or coordinated, I'll actually give these guys an extra quarter star. <laughs> Owen gets up, turns around, and gets another arm drag takedown by LaFon, who effortlessly transitions into a cross arm breaker. And just as I'm about to put him over for being so ahead of his time in WWF, he just, he just fucking lets go. Like, he just releases it for no reason. Uh, fucking idiot, that is so stupid. LaFon takes Owen back to the corner and tags in Doug Furness, who gets raked in the eyes for his trouble. JR actually mentions on commentary that Furness and LaFon used to work in All Japan and their former All Asia tag champs, but this must have really confused Vince because he just completely ignores the accolades and just moves the fuck on from what Ross just said. Uh, Furness and Owen get into a drop down leapfrog spot with Doug getting the better hand of the two in the exchange. However, Owen rolls out of harm's way and tags in Davy Boy, and may I say, the women pop for Davy entering the ring. At first, they go for the test strength, and obviously, Davy quickly gets the better of the two by kicking Furnace in the gut, but no momentum can be made of this as Furnace reverses the Irish whip attempt and then hip tosses Bulldog into an arm drag takedown. After that, Davy catches Doug's neck in a leg scissors headlock, but Furnace goes for a spot where you hop and pop out of it. I, I love that spot, I just don't know what it's called. You, it's, you gotta see it. Furnace headlocks Davy and accidentally backs him into the corner, so Owen and Davy slyly tag in without Furnace's attention. Davy shoots Furnace into the ropes and drops down, forcing Furnace to leap up and get nailed with a ghetto blaster from Owen. And this is where I made a note that Michael Hayes calls Owen's spinning wheel kick an insiguri, which I fucking pop for. Owen does some 80s heel work by raking those eyes and giving some more headbutts, tags back in Davy and starts doing some King Kong Bundy big man shit on Furnace. Jaw jacks with LaFon in the corner and then punches him off the ropes. 
Lafon gets pretty pissed by this, to which Lafon says, fuck this, and then gets back to the ring, so Owen goes to the other side, and I never mentioned earlier that Earl Hebner's the referee, so Earl prevents Lafon from jumping Bulldog, which allows Hart and Smith to get a two-on-one beatdown on Furnace. When Earl finally turns around and sees Owen is the legal man, he asks him, did you tag in? And Owen nods his head and slaps his hands together in confirmation. Earl asks Davy the same question, and Davy slaps his hands and says, ask the funds, they saw, <laughs> it's just, oh my god, it's just brilliant stuff. Furnace gets Owen into a sunset flip pinning predicament, but Earl is still distracted by Davey arguing over the blind tag. I remember someone saying that Furnace and LaFon were supposed to actually win the tag belts from these half-brothers at Wrestlemania, but they, they just didn't get over like they hoped for, and they just nixed the plans. Like, what a fucking shame, because this is one of the better WWF tag matches I can recall from this era, and these guys are just wrestling a house show style, which isn't even giving their 100% all in this. Alright, so Hart and Bulldog tag back in and out for the remainder of the segment, performing heelish rest holds until Owen tries tagging Davy Boy back in, but Bulldog isn't paying attention because he's posing for the crowd on the apron. So Furnace get actually gets the O'Connor roll on Owen for the near three as we enter a commercial break. And then back from the commercial break, Phil LaFon and Owen are the legal men, and shit is just getting out of hand with the half-brothers getting a, a two-on-one assault in on Phil. But then things go even more awry when Davey goes to the ropes to set up like a Royal Rumble-like toss over the ropes. He, he just takes his eyes off of Owen and LaFon and just stands with his back bent down. It, he, he looks like an L. He just looks so stupid. So Phil reverses Owen's Irish whip attempt and sends Owen hurling towards Davey, who then sends Owen flying over the top ropes like it is such a stupid spot you could justify it by saying that bulldog is looking at the ground and he's not looking at the other guys but it just doesn't make any sort of sense owen fakes a knee injury on the outside and takes a 10 count loss to retain the tag team titles and holy shit that was actually a shoot 10 count so nice going earl Alright, and that's that. Next we get a recap of Ahmed's feud with Farouk from the Royal Rumble, and then after that we cut back to Ahmed giving us the good word on uh, what's in store for the Nation of Domination tonight. Ahmed says... Well Ahmed, right here last week on Raw we saw you on the hunt. You were chasing the Nation of Domination. You broke down a door. You chased their automobile off the premises. What's in store for the Nation of Domination tonight? You know what, JR? I got something in store for everybody, including you and Gantz. Because guess what? I don't take my Prozac anymore. And when I get off Prozac, brother, you don't know what might happen to me. And I actually looked it up. Prozac. Quote, an antidepressant of the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor class. It is used for the treatment of a major depressive disorders, obsessive compulsive disorder, bulimia nervosa, panic disorder, and premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Stopping Prozac abruptly may result in one or more of the following symptoms. <laughs> Irritability, nausea, dizziness, vomiting, nightmares, headache, and prickling and or tingling sensations of the skin. <laughs> what <laughs> What the fuck? I, that's hilarious. I can't believe he actually said that. 
So the main event of tonight's Raw is actually a tag team match with The Undertaker and Ahmed Johnson teaming up against Mankind and the Fruk. And they all have history against each other going back to 96. After Ahmed cuts his promo, Undertaker just appears out of nowhere and just fucking grabs Ahmed's neck. Like, what the hell? <laughs> Ahmed gets right in his face and says, Look, dead man, you're gonna be dead enough if you touch me again. <laughs> to which the Undertaker replies, If you go now, you go alone. If you wait, we'll bury them together. I, I, don't, I don't know. Like, you, you gotta see this to comprehend just the awkwardness on camera. Cut to commercial, and when we return from the break, Vince actually brags about this show being the biggest crowd in Monday Night History. And no, he's not done bragging. God help us all. Match number four, Crush versus Goldust. And while Dustin and Marlena are in the ring, JR takes a shot at WCW this time. But Vince doesn't stop there and makes another quip about it. And of course, ladies and gentlemen, yet to come. Intercontinental Championship matchup. Paul and Mark Merrill gets Hunter Hearst Helmsley. Shawn Michaels, the WWF champion, and joins us as well. And what about that matchup? No holes barred tag team. The Undertaker and Ahmed. Oh my goodness, did you see the look on Ahmed's face? Well, there's problems in the locker room of The Undertaker and Ahmed Johnson. How are they going to coexist? We're not telling you we may have that match. We will definitely have that no holds barred matchup in its entirety right here tonight. And it's not anything that we're gonna bait and switch and promise you, well, we may have this, we may have that. No, folks, you've got it tonight. From Skydome in Toronto, Ahmed and The Undertaker against Mankind and Farouk. Man, I sincerely wish they would do this to AEW today, just give Cody the verbal middle finger, because this is my kind of pro wrestling commentary when it's done right, or at least done funnily. Like, I love this particular unabashed style, although I could really do without Michael Hayes in the booth. You know, nothing in life can be perfect. Just like this bullshit match. And now, for whatever reason, should you try to look up Raw from February 3rd, 1997 on YouTube, you'll find that WWE actually released a one-minute clip of this show that was uploaded on November 30th, 2012. And that one-minute clip just happens to be the finish of this match. Out of everything I've just covered, some monkey in the back decided to upload a one-minute clip of this goddamn match over literally anything and everything else, and I don't fucking understand why, because this was terrible and should never see the light of day again. It's barely an exhibition, for Christ's sakes. There isn't even a reason for Crush and Goldust to be fighting. Here's what happens. Triple H makes his way out to distract Goldust, but he just leaves without anyone noticing. Marlena is actually smoking a cigar, so I suppose the smoking laws in Ontario haven't been implemented yet. Savio Vega interferes behind the official's back and hits a spinning wheel kick on Goldust, not an Inseguri, which gives Crush the opportunity to land a heart punch and get the three. How the fuck did Michael Hayes fuck that up for an Inseguri? I have no idea. You want to know about the blackjacks? Oh, it's time. The most dominating team that ever stepped into the ring. The black glove. Anyone gets in their way. The black claw. They're not going to like it. Winning. At all costs, that's all that matters. Blackjacks, we'll ride again, hard and fast. Don't say I didn't warn you. <laughs> oh my god, Blackjack Lanza in a video package hyping the debut of the new Blackjacks. I don't remember seeing Bradshaw or Wyndham ever as this team. 
So I can't speak of how badly the gimmick failed, honestly. All right, cue the commercial break, and then back from the ad, Shawn Michaels makes his entrance, and I was totally surprised to hear his ovation from the crowd. You can hear the bass emitted from the audible boos. So it is far from partisan, but in my honest opinion, maybe a 65-35 a split reaction for HBK here. Like, just for comparison, when I went to Raw in Toronto back in January of 2005, I didn't know about the Montreal Screwjob yet. I think I was just barely 10. So it shook me to hear the crowd just thunderously boo Sean out of the building, because to me, he was still a good guy. But getting back on track, good old JR makes one diss too many during Sean's entrance when he states... And fuck, I just remembered as well, uh, Sid said in his promo that the WWF title brings out the evil in man, so I think that is the second most accurate observation that Sid has ever stated. And use half your brain to guess the first. Another thing I should probably add is whoever is producing this segment is a fucking genius. While Michaels begins to bring up Bret Hart, we go to a behind-the-curtain shot of Bret sitting in gorilla position, looking up at the Sky Dome's giant monitor, gesturing and making facial expressions at what Sean's saying about him. It's just a really nice added touch of reality that I really appreciated. Sean gets under Brett's skin with his snide remarks, and Brett makes his way out to confront Sean without any music, looking all pissed off and ready to fight. Like I said earlier, the pop for Steve Austin was so much louder than what Brett gets here, but he still gets an amazing reception from the audience nonetheless. I'm not taking that away from him. Whoops, I made a mistake in my notes. It's actually Vince who's actually conducting this uh, promo battle between Sean and Brett. Sean compares himself to Muhammad Ali, which Brett disagrees with, but could compare more so to Dennis Rodman on account of people questioning the man's sexuality. And personally, I love how Brett knows he can get under Sean's skin with the homophobia jokes. Obviously, he knows Sean is straight, and that's why he keeps ribbing him for being gay, because if Sean was gay, that would be a totally different story. I I'm just saying, a lot of people don't like how Brett used to make fun of Sean, but my meaningless retort to that is just lighten the fuck up. They genuinely don't like each other, and when you genuinely don't like somebody, you're prone to saying some heinous things to upset them, because that's what real people do in real life. I just hate how everybody has an opinion on what televised wrestling should be presented as. It amazes me how fucking South Park has succeeded in cancel culture, whereas wrestling is just diminished in it. Ah, uh, Jesus Christ, where am I? Oh yeah, uh, Brett calls Sean a degenerate, which is some nice foreshadowing for later this year. And as I noted, and as I noted in my notes, wow, that that sounds terrible. I should edit that. <laughs> uh, Brett is speaking in sound bites here, which I don't like, but you can still sense that competitive tension between the two already. It's fucking real, y'all. Anyways. Sean cuts off Brett to put himself over, and then Stone Cold slides in the ring to give Brett a receipt for earlier tonight. 
The crowd responds so well to Brett and Austin fighting it out. I'm honestly so surprised that they still had the wherewithal at WWF to, to slow burn Austin's main event push to next year. Just before we cut to commercial, Sid makes his way to the ring to confront Sean. But after we return, it's just Sean, Brett, Vince, and two referees trying to maintain the peace. And granted, Toronto is going nuts for the possibility of Hart and Michaels like scrapping it out. But Sean lays down the belt and tells Brett to cross the line. Brett just stoically holds his ground. Well, because of that, Sean goes to pick the belt up. Brett places his foot on the strap to prevent Michaels from doing that. So now Sean gets all fucking fired up and he takes off his gear. And then Brett picks up the belt and the crowd is going apeshit in anticipation for this. Uh, the referees talk to Brett into returning the belt to Sean. And in a show of good sportsmanship, Brett throws the belt down <laughs> on HBK's feet instead of handing it to him, and just fucking gives him the bird and walks off. JR symbolically states, quote, Somewhere at some point in time, these men need to settle their differences. And that'd be, what, 13 years later? To this day, practically? Uh, folks, we've been digressing downward with this show as I've progressed onward, and this next segment just keeps on sloping okay so i actually did watch the fan cam footage and apparently this next part was actually the second segment of the pre-show with the dark match being the rock defeating the sultan but nobody cares nonetheless we see the official contract signing of the infamous tiger ali singh and uh on a later day upon compensated request I'll, I'll delve right into the entirety of the tiger family and explore their impact in ontario culture and japanese wrestling history but essentially for now all you need to understand is that Tiger Ali's father, Tiger Jeet, is the most famous Indian wrestler of all time. Like, fuck Ray Kali. Tiger Jeet was born in India, and he emigrated here to Toronto to become a pivotal roster member in the Maple Leaf wrestling scene in, like, the mid-1960s. And then he'd go on to become one of the top-drawing heels of his day for New Japan in the mid-1970s. He was the first person to also fight Inoki in Canada in 1975 for MLW, and also maintained his career well into the early 1990s up to this point, and has also been highlighted in dozens of wrestling publications. That's not an exaggeration. His elaborate entrances are fucking iconic and furthermore tiger jeet singh has been a pillar of the ontario community for the past 25 years by this point by this point in 97 he's the official business ambassador for brampton ontario the goodwill ambassador for milton ontario which may as well be his town if you've ever been there and as of january 97 is now the international ambassador for wwf and i'm also pretty sure he's on our board of education as well but i'll have to fucking fact check that like i just need you guys to understand that tiger jeet singh was a big fucking deal to the canadian community but his son tiger ali did not mean a goddamn thing to anybody at this point and thank you voices of wrestling.com for the write-up on how poorly tiger ali's run was with the company because just like with kenta or brian pillman tiger ali gets a fucking press conference in his honor and Bret hart endorses him as the future of canadian professional wrestling and yes ontario has a tremendously vast indian population which is mostly comprised of the greater toronto area but fucking hell none of that will ever matter again this point moving forward like as for the promo that aired it actually sounds verbatim exactly like the speech Kurt Angle would have cut when he made his debut I don't recall him ever saying Canada or Canadian once it was like a recycled patriotic promo so I have nothing to recommend here <sighs> Jesus Christ 
After Tiger Ali Singh highlights, we cut back to the ring with Mark Merrill awaiting Triple H. And before Triple H even makes his way out to the curtain, Vince just can't help himself but say, quote, Whoa, my goodness, unbelievable, what an interview, all hell's breaking loose earlier on. <laughs> and how about it, we didn't even uh, bait and switch there. Said we were going to have a championship match, not having it and all that kind of crap and tease you with all that stuff we're not going to present. Because what we are going to present is what we said we were going to present. <laughs> and back with us now. My goodness, unbelievable. What an interview. Oh, hell, breaking loose. Early on. And how about it? We didn't even uh, switch there. Said we were going to have a championship match and not have it. All that kind of crap and tease you with stuff that we're not going to present. Because what we are going to present is what we said we were going to present. No holes barred, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> okay, just in case you're on the fence of whether or not Vince was referring to ECW, he was not. I can honestly assure you. And and now, he, he just doesn't give a fuck. This is amazing. And I actually found out why. These are psychological tactics, JR. Oh, absolutely. Match number five. Intercontinental champion Hunter Hearst Hemsley defending against Mark Marrow. Eight days prior, this mixed match was set up on a WWF superstar show when Triple H's butler, that's what they said, Mr. Hughes, <laughs> attacked Ahmed Johnson in a Triple H's match, and then later that same show, Sable got involved in Mark Marrow's match against The Undertaker. This is an unrelated note, but apparently either on the superstars or... I think it was this Superstars taping or either the Shotgun Saturday Night around this time. Undertaker chokeslam Sable, but the footage never made air and the plans to have Undertaker and Marrow feud just fell through the cracks for some unknown reason. So perhaps this is exactly how we got this match now instead. I just thought I'd bring that up for anyone who want to dig into the validity or try to find that footage for me. Please and thank you. And because of the managerial interference between the two, the powers that be made this a championship match with no managers at ringside stipulation. In fact, I don't think we'll ever see Curtis Hughes again in WWF. He just kind of disappears from TV and I really don't care enough to find out why. JR deserves all the praise in the world for his commentary style. He reminded me that Triple H was the one who dethroned Mark Merrow for the IC title on the same Raw that Brett made his shocking return back in October. And fucking hell, man, like, I am not a play-by-play -play commentator by any stretch, so there's no way that I could accurately recount all the Flair Steamboat wrestling exchanges that these two do to start things off with. So here's what I actually wrote down. Uh, just two minutes into the match, Vince starts comparing Triple H to Robin Hood, and then him and JR make fun of Robin Hood some more just to plug La Femme Nikita, which is the counter-programming to that show. You want a war, you got a war. And at this point, I had completely lost track of how many times Vince had professionally said, Fuck you, WCW. He just won't stop. And please, don't think that my derailment of this match is a sign that I'm actually burying this match, because honestly, to my surprise, these two really worked well together and put together an awesome match. It's, it's worth checking out, it's just my only downside. It wasn't worked favorably for a dome-sized crowd, especially one that was so dimly lit. And this is an instance where the friend of the fan cam guy says that he can't see shit for most of the match, because it is wrestled on the outside. I mean, this match didn't kill the crowd, but based on his assessment, the poor lighting was making the upper section agitated because they could barely see the wrestling. I mean, depending on your taste and preference, I wouldn't argue anyone saying that this was actually the match of the night. It was really good. I mean, what it lacked in crowd response 
was made up for with the tightly shot camera angles for us watching at home. Oh yeah, uh, Mr. McMahon told me to tell you, there's no if The Undertaker is going to show up. There's no if Ahmed Jones is going to show up. There's no if Mankind or Farouk's gonna show up. They are here. No holds barred. P.S. JR says, Plus, there must be a winner in this match. No shenanigans here. No disqualification. No countouts. Anything goes. You're going to see it all in its entirety right here tonight, guaranteed. And we guarantee there must be a winner. Anyways, the finish of the match was Triple H tearing off the turnbuckle pad and trying to Irish whip Marrow into the exposed steel. Marrow fights off the attempt like some Johnny Be Good babyface and tells the ref what happened, which actually inadvertently distracts Earl, allowing Triple H to pull some sort of weapon like brass knuckles or out of his boot and knock Marrow out for the successful defense. Honestly, this was a really good match. No bullshit. And helps add a little credibility to this supposed wrestling show. Finally, I'm going to skip ahead from commercial break to the televised main event of the evening. And already the nation has appeared twice tonight, so by now the Canadians should know all the words to JT and Wolfie D's rap. Uh, oddly enough, Paul Bearer and Mankind accompany the NOD to the nation's theme. I hope this doesn't come off as racist, but Paul Bearer is too white to be with the nation. And I literally mean this motherfucker is glowing in a barely lit stadium. Walking around the, the four darkest guys on the roster not named Ahmed Johnson. Like, I'm sorry, but I can't even begin to speak about what's going on with Clarence Mason stealing Jim Cornette's clients. I, I don't know what the hell's going on with him, but I'd be shocked if Cornette hasn't spoken about this already. I'm just not well versed in it myself. Oh, wait a minute. I wrote down back from another commercial break. <laughs> Holy shit, two commercials in a span of what, five minutes? Uh, back from the commercial and fucking Ron Simmons has got Mankind doing the nation's one-arm salute. <laughs> Mick turns to Paul in excitement thinking he's black now like Steve Martin and the jerk and then you'd swear the crowd saw the resurrection of Christ or Stone Cold again, but actually it's Ahmed Johnson. Dude, I knew this guy was over once, but wow. I, I did not see that coming. Like, is this a dream match? No. Oh, for fuck's sakes. I think this is the last time, but as Johnson makes his way out to the ring with Jim Duggan's 2x4 of all fucking things, Vince says, quote, No holes barred, ladies and gentlemen. We're not going to tease you for an hour and 45 minutes with some crap that may or may not happen. Some sort of bait and switch tactic. No, we said no holes barred. We said tag team action. And with Ahmed Johnson and The Undertaker, that's what we've got for you. <laughs> all right. I, I was wrong. 25,628 just marked the fuck out for The Undertaker's entrance. That must have been the loudest reaction of the night, no doubt. But perhaps, well, I, I still maintain Stone Cold's arrival was deafening. It was, it was the most deafening pop in the stadium earlier. But for whatever reason, I could, I noticed I could hear the crowd a lot more clearly for the main event so i'm not sure if there were any technical audio issues or not on wwf's part or if that's just the video quality itself finally match number six undertaker and ahmed johnson versus mankind and farouk bell dings and taker and foley brawl to the outside up the aisleway while well that gets his shit in on farouk still standing in the ring everybody is cheering their asses off and even if the sound was sweetened in post-production which it could have been, the crowd still appears to be losing their minds for the action, so all is forgiven. 
Farouk locks in the chin lock rest hold that completely subdues Ahmed's momentum, but thankfully The Undertaker made some short work of Mankind and jumped back in the ring to save the match from ending like Starcade 96. Ah oh, hell, I was wrong. With just 8 minutes of TV time remaining, re <laughs> Vince reminds us, quote, No bait and switch tactics, we've got it for ya! Ah, oh, Jesus Christ. Johnson rolls out of the rain to attack Mankind on the floor while Undertaker takes control of Farouk with some shitty shots to the corner, but Farouk rakes his eyes and gains the momentary advantage. And no shit, Mankind does the exact same to Ahmed immediately after. And then after that, Farouk clotheslines Undertaker and starts hailing it up on the hard camera side of the audience, but that gives Undertaker enough time to recover and restore order to the main event scene. Uh... Ahmed gives Foley a nasty looking back body drop on the blue steps, which just made me feel so bad for Mick more than anything. It didn't look good, and it still looked painful, but with Mankind temporarily out of action, Ahmed sets his sights on Clarence Mason and, ch and chases Clarence to the back. Undertaker delivers old school to Farouk and Ahmed goes back to work on Simmons to the outside just as Foley conveniently re-enters the ring for Undertaker's... convenience <laughs> Uh, give credit where it's due to the monkeys in the back. The match goes to commercial one last time, but upon return, Undertaker goes for old school on Mankind, who reverses into the Manable Claw, and that was flawlessly executed, simplistic looking, and just awesome as fuck all at once. Instead of that being the end right there, right then, Johnson comes back in and kills Mankind with the Pearl River Plunge, but Simmons breaks up the count just at the last second. Okay, aside from a burning hammer... And maybe the Lariato from Hell. The Dominator is one of my all-time favorite moves. I use that finisher for all my creative characters. I don't care how reckless or how dangerous or how stupid the move is. I'm not a professional wrestler. But god damn. <laughs> Ahmed was sandbagging the shit out of Farouk here. Like, so we don't quite get it. But to Ahmed's credit, he's not below jobber status yet either. So he was not fucking feeling it. Uh, Deadman breaks the count, but he gets a kick to the dick from Foley for his compassion. Foley grabs a steel folding chair, a, a forward now object, if you will, as it were, <laughs> and attempts to crack Undertaker's skull in the corner. Taker puts up his boot, and Mick gets a face full of steel for his trouble. Vince unintentionally says something very poetic. He says, quote, Mankind is dangerous. <laughs> Just before the final commercial break, Clarence came back out with Crush, D'Lo, and Savio, but I never mentioned it because it didn't mean a goddamn thing until Ahmed went out of his way to beat the shit out of all three of them. I swear, they never actually got involved. Like, seriously. Seriously. Here's another McMahon quote. These aren't has-beens. These are individuals in their prime. And they are going at it. Oh, yeah! Oh, my God. I don't know how Vince can just turn it on and... Anyway... Mankind kindly posed for the Undertaker's choke slam, and Ahmed gets assaulted by the nation for a moment until he gets his hands on this huge-ass 2x4 that once again chases Clarence and the nation back backstage. Farouk and Mankind get a quick handicap beat down in on the Undertaker, but despite two teases, Ahmed keeps his wits about him and never abandons the Undertaker. That's really fucking awesome after watching the exact opposite thing happening in tag matches for the last 17 years. He re-enters the fray and makes Makes the save, and literally just as I finish writing pencil to paper, Ahmed chases Fruit backstage and spanks him on the ass with a 2x4. <sighs>
Foley reverses Taker's move with a swinging neckbreaker and then goes to Paul Bearer for something inexplicable, but ends up backfiring when Undertaker knocks the working cocaine out of Foley's hand straight into his face. Foley trips out hard as he would, but Vader legitimately runs down the ramp and makes the save on Foley's behalf. Since the beginning of January, uh, Mankind and Vader began teaming together under the management of Paul Bearer to destroy Taker Mania, brother. Although it hasn't been a successful pairing thus far, I don't know how they weren't booked to be tag team champions, or at least some dominant badass fucking force to be reckoned with. But I also failed to mention prior to this match they aired a highlight from superstars that saw Foley accidentally whack Vader in the face of the chair. So naturally, as you'd expect, the same happened here. And McMahon's credit, no bait and switch tactics, folks. Uh, Foley picks up the Undertaker, Vader picks up the steel chair, Vader swings, Taker ducks, and Foley's unprotected head connects with the cold metal. Vader tries to rectify the situation by hitting Taker with a chair, but Row Warrior Mark no-sells this blow to a roaring ovation. Taker feeds some punches and kicks Vader's way until he gets a signature uppercut strike and sends Vader flipping over the top rope. Undertaker throws down a chair and hits Mankind with the tombstone pile driver. And Vader just walks away like, screw you guys, I'm a going home. It's over. One, two, three, and the show goes off the air, hyping Thursday, raw Thursday. And the final four pay-per-view with the crowd cheering on. The actual dark match main event that evening saw Shawn Michaels successfully retain his title over Sid and Brett in about a 12 minute match or so. And so it's worth noting that the crowd booed the shit out of Shawn this time around and they really wanted Brett to win. I think people really were hoping that there'd be like a, a title switch kind of like in Saskatoon but no dice. And there you go, guys. That's my recap for your Raw review of February 3rd, 1997. The first two-hour Raw taking place from Ontario for the first time. As well as returning to the Sky Dome for the first time since WrestleMania 6. And above all else, truly the first time WWF was able to compete with Nitro in the Monday Night Wars. Well, there you go, Jesse. Happy belated birthday, dude. Your mom picked a hell of a day to get that C-section. <laughs> <laughs> hope you like the show and thank you everyone else who tuned into this program it was originally my intention to release the history of wrestling in ontario but to tell you the truth i felt like it would be a waste of time for both yourselves and myself if i half-assed it professional wrestling has a vast history in every pocket of the world there's no way anyone can know all of it and i'm no exception to the rule I'm just trying to focus on the history of my country through grapple fuck form, and I'm gonna do it to the best of my abilities. Like, this is just for fun at the end of the day. And But that doesn't mean I'm ever gonna give you junk food audio that's, that's meaningless garbage. So with all that being said, I, I'm gonna work on my own projects for now, but I am so proud to have two sponsors already in such a short span of time. Like, it's not about the money. Fuck the money, you guys. I'm, I'm never going to talk numbers with you, mainly because numbers aren't worth bragging about, but mostly because I do respect the concept of a person's privacy. So if y'all want me to do another show relatively soon, figure out what it is specifically you want me to talk about. Listen to the pilot if you want to get the rest of the self-explanatory content. And thank you so much. I appreciate the support, everybody. Until next time, just remain calm, keep strong, and stay free, y'all. Downtown by myself, and I had so much time to sit down and think about myself. And then there she was, like double cherry pie. Yeah, there she was, like disco superfly. 
Surely 